We've been considering all semester long uh, this book, and we've been saying that Peter is writing to a group of believers uh, in modern-day Turkey, and that they are uh, folks who are learning and, and wondering what, about what it looks like to live faithful lives in a world and a culture that doesn't always agree with them and think the same things as they do. And so uh, we think this is a very, very pertinent book for our, for our day and for our age. And so I would invite you to, ter- to turn there. And I think tonight what you're going to see in a lot of ways is what, uh, what I would say is the, is the apex of the book. I think tonight is uh, quite profound in what Peter has to say. And I hope that I do it justice tonight by sharing that with you. Um, it's sort of like the chorus of the song. It's the sweet spot. It's the, it's the high point of his letter when, he, when he's trying to get it across. And in fact, it's this passage tonight that made me uh, want to do, especially verses 9 and 10, that made me want to do this book uh, for a whole series. So I hope you're encouraged by it. I'm going to try my best tonight. Let's read together from Peter, second, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is God's word given to us in love, and we would do well to listen to it. Let's pray. I mean, let's read it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's ask Him to help us now as we understand what He is speaking to us. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would, by your Spirit, come and teach us. We lift this all up in your name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine for just a brief moment that you are uh, going to go home for the Christmas holidays, okay? Uh, You've arrived several days before Christmas and your mom has asked you to help you to get the house ready for Christmas. The garland and the decorations are all crammed up into the attic. And on your last trip out of the attic, you notice this box. It's a box about this big, maybe. And it's an ornate one. There's gold on the outside of it. And it's one that you have never in your 19 years seen before. Your curiosity gets the best of you. So you sit down. You take the ornate box. It's covered with purple and gold and blue and silver into your hands. And the weight of it is so heavy. And it begins to foreshadow a bit about the contents that you are about to see. You open the box, and inside of it, there are pictures. And there are pictures of a young couple from 
years ago, and they're small children. The couple is donned with the finest attire. He's wearing a tuxedo, a stately tuxedo. She in an evening gown, made up beautiful. And they're wearing the finest of jewels and jewelry. The backdrop is unmistakably some place in a distant land. And the little child that they hold in their arms has a little freckle on his or her cheek right there that looks eerily like yours. Beside the pictures, there are jewels, there's an insignia, and there are papers. You take the box and its contents to your mom, and you ask her about it. And how she responds to your questions utterly changes your life. She says that upon your 21st birthday, two years from now, you were to receive the box and the story behind it. She tells you that you were adopted as a baby and that though they have loved you and raised you and provided a wonderful life for you, the suspicions you've had from time to time about not really being their child are confirmed. You see, you had always sensed that your story was humbly somewhat greater, somehow more majestic. You had always sensed that your life was meant for HD and you'd been living in black and white. And the box is all that remains of your past, which tells you that you are in fact a prince or a princess. And though you never knew it, you had been living all along as royalty. As royalty. Now I'll borrow that story from a man named Rankin Wilburn who opens his book, Union with Christ, with it. But why do I start with it? Well, let me ask this question. How might knowing who you really are direct how you would live if you found out that information about you? Do you think that if you were a prince or princess, an heir to a throne, that you might live differently? And the point in sharing with you is this with you is to highlight that if you know who you truly are, you begin to move out into the world. You begin to inhabit the world that you live in in utterly and profoundly different ways. And in fact, knowing who you are gives you a, a footing, a standing. It, it, tells you who you, it tells you your story. To be able to move out into the world and know how to move and to live. You live differently as a prince. You live differently as royalty than you would perhaps as a normal, common life. And here's why I want you to see this tonight. I want you to see that Peter's concern is a lot about what I just did for you in that story. That he wants you to know tonight who you are if you are in Jesus. Because he knows that if you don't know who you are, if you don't understand your story tonight, then there is no way you're ever going to be able to live for Him. You see, He's about to, later in His letter, to being calling us into some pretty desperate circumstances. He's going to talk a lot about suffering. He's actually going to talk about loving your spouse too. He's going to talk about what it means to love the church as well. And the idea is, is that you will never be able to do it unless you come to terms with who you are. And so what He's going to show us today is a lot about what it means for us to be united to Christ, to be in union with Him, or as he would say, as living stones. Peter's concern for us tonight is to show us who we are. He says that when you have been born again into a living hope, from chapter 1, verse 3, something fundamental about your status before God's happens. 
that you're made into something new altogether. So I want to start tonight by showing you these three things. What we're actually made, who makes us, and thirdly, how we're made it. So, what we're made into, who makes us, and how we're made into it. Let's take a look at the idea here, first of all, of what we're made. Did you catch it there? Peter, as one pastor puts it, hits the high watermark in the, in the, in the, uh, in the letter by describing to us who we actually are. Look at verse 5. Did you catch it there? He says this, that you are precious stones, right? That you yourselves are like stones being built up into a spiritual house. And you might go, big whoop, Ryan. What's the big deal with that? You know what I mean? But look over in verse 9 as well. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And then he adds two more things to it in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here's what I want to show you just ever so quickly about this. That Peter is sort of grabbing us by the shirt collar. And he's pulling us in. And he's reminding us of who we are. And you might say, well, what's the big deal with this list of descriptors here? And I'm going to get at that in just a moment. Because I want you to see that these are not just labels without any sort of significance. That they're actually steeped in Old Testament concepts and ideas that Peter is drawing on, primarily from, from three places. One we'll look at in depth, but two other ones from Exodus chapter 19 and then Isaiah chapter 43. And I just want to take one of these, one of these, and show you that what it is that we're made into, that what Peter now calls us, where he tells us who we are at our core. Take a look with me just ever so briefly at this idea of you being a, a holy nation and a people for his own possession. That language right there, as I mentioned, comes out of, it comes out of the Old Testament. And it talks about a time when God's people were being brought out of the land of Egypt. That God has called His people to Himself and He has said to them, This is who you are. You are My people. I love you. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. And the fact that you have been brought out by Me is to be the thing that defines you. I'm going to take one of these and drill down just a second on it. This idea of a people for His own possession. There's several times that it talks about that, but one of the ones that I'd like to draw your attention to, if you have your Bible or you want to um, mark it down, turn back with me to the fifth book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm going to show you something from chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. And I want you to notice something that he talks about in chapter 7, verse 6. This is God, through Moses, speaking to His people that He's just rescued He's just delivered. He's just brought out. Here it is. He's just saved from the hand of Egypt. And this is what he says. Verse 6 of chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. There it is. There's the language. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. There it is. For His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And when you read that, you might start going, wow. Gosh, Israel must have been really, really, really special for God to get to do that. They must have been doing. They must have been killing it. They must have been crushing it with their lives. They must have been a massive nation, right? They must have had their junk together, and that's what made God notice them. And look what it says right after that. 
Verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, but you were the fewest of all people. In other words, there was Hittites, there was Amorites, there was all these people groups, there was Egyptians and Canaanites, all these nations. And God says, I'm setting my love and my affection on you, my people. And it's not because you were so awesome. It's actually, in fact, because you aren't. Because that's who I am. Because I draw to myself people who aren't awesome. And I think when you begin to see that, you begin to see something about the logic of grace, even in the Old Testament. I'm not done reading. Look at verse 8 in Deuteronomy. It says this, But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out. This is what's so important. If you were to ask God why, why did you, why did you bring God's people out of... Why did you bring your people out of Egypt? He would say, because I love you. You say, yeah, but what about us made us lovable? And he would say, not a darn thing. I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you because I love you. I rescue you. I bring you out because I delight in you. Now, here's why this is so important. Peter is taking that concept, that language, that thought category, and he's applying it to guess who? You. And me. And everyone who has been connected to Jesus. And so now, dear friends, do you know what that means for you? That you were made into something. You were made into the beloved of God Himself. And I want this to sort of wake you up a little bit. Because if I were to ask you what you think God thinks about you, I'm betting my house on the fact that you don't think what the Bible says about you is true. Because you believe that God looks at you through the lens of your own failures. You blow it, God gives you His frown. You get wasted one night when you know you're not supposed to. He looks at you and there's a scowl coming your way. When you wake up in a bed with a person that you don't know who it is, and you know that you're a Christian, do you believe that you have Jesus' smile in that moment? We talked about this yesterday with our freshmen at Freshman Bible Study. And I'm telling you, it's just as true for you today as well. That if you are in Christ Jesus... It is His kindness that makes Him smile on you. The Lord Himself does not love sin. He, in fact, hates sin. But it does. if you are in Jesus, God looks at you through the finished atoning work that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. And He calls you what? His treasured possession. His own people. This is why this is so high. Y'all, I can't even get at it. It's so high. It's so majestic. In fact, you know what? It's royal. This is what God is speaking about you tonight. Because this is what He has made you to be. So I just want to ask you one question. A quick question of application. And that is this. How do you honestly think that God thinks of you if you are in Christ? How in the world do you think He thinks of you? Are you going to let the words of 1 Peter... Chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Be the thing that defines you. You know what we ought to do? We ought to walk around and say, Hey, treasure possession. 
How's your day going? Hey, royal priesthood, how's it going? Because that's what you are corporately. And you may say, no, I'm a failure. I'm way too fat. I'm way too skinny. I don't make good grades. I'm the outcast. No, 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 my friends. Stop right there. Who you are is what Jesus says about you. Not about what you say about you. And the moment you begin to see that seep down into your bones, you begin to understand a little bit about what Peter is getting at. Who you've been made. Who you have been made into. Peter is trying to get that into us. Secondly, not only is he showing us, not only is he showing us what we've been made, he's actually going to tell us how we get this new identity. And did you catch it there earlier in the text? In verse 4, he says this. He says that we are made this by our union or by our connection, by being connected to Christ. Verse 4 says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, that living stone is Christ, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What's he talking about? Peter is taking the language of a building and he's saying, Those who are connected to Christ are like little stones in union with or in connection with the cornerstone of a building. Now, y'all might not see... Actually, there's a couple of buildings on the front side of campus there on university. If you walk up to them, you can actually see the cornerstones laid into the buildings. And I think it might be Sadler or Reed or I think Jarvis is actually says like 1911, you know, when it's been built. Now, that's more for... uh, It's just for uh, decoration. But... In old days, in old architecture principles, the most important stone that you laid was the cornerstone, the one that that set the walls up against itself. Because if that angle wasn't right, and if that wasn't exactly smooth, as you went vertical, everything could begin to topple. And so what he's saying is, is the most important thing in this building is the cornerstone. But you, like the other bricks or the other stones in the house, are being built together as this temple structure to be able to offer up sacrifices unto God. Now, what am I getting at here? Here's the point that I want you to see. I want you to see that you are made this and that the idea is is that you are made these things because of our connection and our union with Christ. But here's the thing I want you to see as well. I want you to see that... Did you catch it in verse... Six. He says that whoever believes in Him will never be put to shame. Now this is so critical, y'all, for us to understand because remember what I said about Peter's listeners. They were being tempted to fall away. They, were being, they, were, they would soon suffer for their faith. And the idea is, is that no matter what may come your way, Christ by His Spirit will hold you till the end. That's not only true of them, that is true of you today. And that in the end, you will not be put to shame. You will be lifted up. You will be given honor is what it says. But it also says something else. It also says that those who don't will be brought to shame. Where you see it right there, they will stumble in verse 8. And what this is telling us is something very critical that I want to zero in on. He is saying this. That the thing that makes you rise or fall The thing, the definition of your life is going to be, is Jesus your cornerstone? 
Or is He the one that you stumble over, that causes you to fall? And what I want you to see that Peter is saying, there is two categories. There are those who are brought to honor and those who are brought to shame. And the defining principle, the thing that defines them, is where you stand in relation to Jesus. Dear friends, what that means is, is that for you tonight, there is no neutrality. There's not a middle ground. There is not a third option. And what I'm hoping that you'll see tonight is that Christ brings you and is calling you to Himself, inviting you into His presence to be able to be, have this label, this identity applied to you. <coughs> Let me drive home this really quickly because I think it's a question that some of you might be asking. You might say, Ryan, that sounds incredibly close-minded. That sounds incredibly exclusive for you to say what you just said. Because you just said that Jesus is the defining principle about which people have salvation or not. And that's exactly what I just said. Because it's exactly what Peter has just said. And so some of you are thinking, whoa, wait a second. Don't, aren't there sort of many roads up the religious mountain here? We're all just going to the top of the mountain and we have our different paths there. And I want to say this. Hang with me on this. I want to show you. Well, I think it's a valid concern. But I don't think it stands. I don't think it can hold up. And here's why. The critique that there is only one road up the mountain, as it were, which is what Peter is getting at, is often viewed as exclusive because of this. Because it's saying you should not be able to have an objective view of what is true. <coughs> that things are relative. That there's more roads up the mountain than one. And you know, this person's going this way, and this person's going this way, and some people might come through Jesus, and other people are going to, but we're going to the same God, right? And I want to show you, so you know. But that's, why, that's why I won't stand. Here's why. Because to take the position of being able to see all the roads up the mountain assumes what? That you yourself have a vantage point that is objective, that can see everything. Which is the very thing that you're critiquing when you say that Christ can't be the only way. So what am I getting at? Everybody's exclusive. Everybody's got some vision of, a vision of exclusivity. And the question really is, is which vision, which vision of exclusivity helps you, to, helps you to live and to do life with those people you disagree with? I'm suggesting Christianity for you to consider. Secondly, why it won't stand is the nature of the path going up the mountain. You see, every other religion is saying, do. Do these things. If you perform well enough, if you're a good enough person, if you follow this path, then you can have access to God. Think about it. Do you know what Buddha's last words were? Never keep striving. Do you know what Jesus' last words were on the cross? It is finished. Dear friends, I find that compelling. That Christ is saying the way in Christianity that you have access with God is that God comes to you. You don't go to Him. And that's meant to be utterly liberating. Freeing you. Freeing you. And that's what Peter is getting at. That's what he's wanting you to see tonight. He's wanting, he wants you to sober up for a moment and say, where do I stand in relation to this stone? Okay? So I, want, I really want to drive that home. And so the question is just very, very simple. The point I want to make tonight is just that I want you to begin to see 
that Christ is saying, I mean, that Peter is saying, the stone, what you do with the stone is essential. Now, I'm going to drive this home just a little bit more and I'm going to move on. Perhaps tonight you would say this, Jesus, I don't think He existed. Fine, well and good. I just want you to know that puts you at odds even with the best of scholarship that has no interest whatsoever in Christianity. Secondly, you say I, He existed. But He was a mere teacher. He was a guru to follow for great life lessons. He was sort of like an embodied Aesop, spitting out fables left and right. And if you want a good life, you follow what He has to say. But I want to suggest to you, that's fine, but over and over again, we see that that is not an option that Jesus Himself leaves open to you and me to think about Him. He claimed to be God. He called Himself the resurrection and the life. He died, which is no big deal since everybody died. But here's the problem, y'all. Three days later, He walked out of a grave. And there were eyewitnesses who saw that, right? And if that happened, you realize you're not dealing with an ordinary man or a good teacher or a guru. You're dealing with a man who predicted his own death and resurrection and then accomplished it. Which is why C.S. Lewis, which I love what he writes. I'm going to get you to hit the lights there, just the silver lights there, Mason, so we can read this together. Lewis says this about Jesus. It's wonderful. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying... The really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You can hit the lights there. Peter is saying that when you see Jesus as the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you will never, ever, ever be put to shame. No matter what your friends, your family, your boss, your fraternity brothers, your sorority sisters, your teammates, your roommates think of you, you will stand. He upholds you, and He will do so to the end. He is the one that has made you. He is the one who has given you this new identity that we just spoke of. And as I mentioned earlier, if Christians aren't made by their own efforts and their own record, what is Peter telling us about how we are given this new identity? If it's not in us, how can we ultimately be given it? And that takes us to our third point, this idea of how, how we were made. In verse 10 it tells us, but I want to give you a little bit of a background. We're going to have to put up our thinking caps on our thinking caps for a brief minute here. And I want to go back to an Old Testament book called Hosea. The book of Hosea is about a man turned prophet. Name, guess, can you guess? Hosea, there it is. Uh, God tells Hosea that he's going to use Hosea's life to tell the whole world about God's amazing, staggering, crazy grace towards them. So here is what God tells Hosea to do. He says, I want you to go get married. So far, so good. Sounds like a good life for many of us. But he tells him to go marry a prostitute. And her name is Gomer. And she ends up having children because she's a prostitute with somebody else. And God tells, this is weird, but hang with me. God tells Hosea to name the children Lo-Ruhamah. That's one of the children. And another one of the children, Lo-Ami. 
So lo rumah, lo rumah, and lo ami. I'm not going to tell you what their names mean just yet, okay? But because God's people were, were like those who were going to be like their mother, Gomer. They had turned their backs on God. And where Gomer would, have, would leave Hosea and return to prostitution, God's people would leave him. But here's where it gets so sweet, y'all. God then tells Hosea to go seek out his wayward wife and to love her and her children, lo ruhamah, which means no mercy, and to love the other child, lo ami, which means not my people. And he wants him to love them and care for them and to take them as own. Why? Here it is. Because the day is coming when God would do that with His own people. They turn their backs on Him, and yet He says this in Hosea chapter 2, Behold, I will allure her, speaking corporately about His people, and bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you and meet to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love, love and mercy. And the clear picture is this, y'all, that God's people constantly turn their backs on Him. They spurn His love for lovers, of others, for lovers less wild. They run to other lovers, y'all. That is what the Bible says that we do with God at every turn. At every turn. And yet God constantly comes back to us. And what is the result of this? Hosea ends here in the second chapter by saying this, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And not my people will become my people. And if you turn your eyes now to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, I'm going to read it. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's what I want you to see tonight. Peter is saying that whenever God makes and takes a people for Himself, He, He always and only does so with people who have given themselves over to other lovers, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. And left to themselves, they would remain forever not a people and without mercy. And that just needs to sit in. I want you to sense your need tonight. That without the intervening grace of God coming, searching, seeking you out, you remain not a people. But what? But what? But what is Peter telling us? Because of God's great grace for us, He comes to us. He dispenses His mercy on us. And He calls us His people by bringing us in. What's my point? In other words, mercy through Christ is what makes us a people. Nothing in us. God welcomes us and makes us His own because of what has Jesus, because what Jesus has done for us in His mercy. And that's why I want to say this tonight. Christian, if you have trusted Christ tonight, I want you to know that God only has mercy left for you. You have been made His people you were once outsiders, but now you have received mercy. And this is what I want you to begin to consider tonight. If you are not a Christian, the offer is yours for the taking. You may have Christ's mercy tonight. You can become His people, His beloved. 
the one to whom He calls my own, His treasured possession, all that I have speak, spoken of, it is yours for the taking. At whatever, at 10.05, I know I'm over. But I want y'all to know this. I want to plead with you to please take it. It's mercy rich. It's mercy free. It's mercy for the taking because of what Jesus has done for us. And do you know how you can know that God has done this for you and He will do this for us? Here's why. Because the one that was in the sight of God chosen and precious, Jesus Himself, was actually rejected by God Himself. You see, on the cross, before Christ cried out, it is finished. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was nowhere to be found for Jesus in the moment of His greatest need. There where darkness was coming around Him, where He was bearing the weight of sin for the world, where He's bearing your sin and my sin. He cries out, God, where are you? And silence. The face of God the Father is turned for Him. Why? So that you can have it. So that you can have the very smile of God. Dear friends, that's what He is trying to get at. Because Jesus was being treated as you deserved. You now get treated as Jesus deserves. And that is profoundly good news. And do you know what that makes you tonight? Royalty. Royalty. And so that story that I told you at the beginning is actually a true story of every single one of you in here if you're in Christ. Because you are heirs to a kingdom. Your Father is a King. Your Savior is a King. He is royal. And this is your narrative. And so, it is what we might say a fairy tale. Ah, but it's a true one. And it's for yours of the taking tonight. Let's pray.